Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 96. Today, we're going to be thinking about what does it mean to start doing local contextual theology. Let's do this. Hey everyone, thank you guys once again for joining us on our conversation. And as the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, we really want to talk more practically and we also want to be talking about how do we bring all of these ideas and internalize and embed them, embody them, and live it out in our context. And that is kind of the focal point of our conversation today. What does the start of local contextual theology look like? How do we start? Where do we kind of need to start exploring? Where do we need to launch off of? That's going to be our conversation today. And we're excited about what we're going to be talking about. As always, and we're recording this live in person, and it is such a gift. Shu, Bernard, and Xenia are here. How are you guys doing? Hey, Hello. Hello. It's so good to be together around a table talking about these important topics. So we're talking about local contextual theology. And this was a conversation, and this was a question that came about as we were talking about topics, because even though we've talked about a lot of different themes over the course of the last number of years, we want to kind of maybe focus a little bit more on this topic today as how do we live out what we believe? How do we actually see that take root and produce change in in our lives and in our churches? So where do we start? When we hear the term local contextual theology, what are the first couple things that pop into your head? You mean theology isn't universal? (laughs) 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 Yes. Universal to one particular group of people. This is the person who wrote their demon on contextual theology. (laughs) Right. Let's talk about your uh, thesis and dissertation. (laughs) You know, even though we joke about it, I, th- I would almost say that some people think that, that there is a universal theology and that we all just have to fall in line to this one theology without thinking about context and without thinking about the history of how that theology was formed. You know, I don't think many people want to think about the history of things. It's easier to probably blot it out. And it, I think what ends up happening is we take what's pop theology as the, as the what is true to everything. And I think I've always um, thought this with a lot of, you know, the people in you know, my ministry. It's, it's a lot of people who look towards the most popular kind of Christian living books. And then this, oh, if I like how this guy or this girl writes, most of these guys, but, uh, you know, like, then I'll follow this. And then this person dictates the theology and how we should live and, and all this kind of thing. So I find that that's what ends up happening. So you just have that person's framework or that, you know, church or denominations framework. And that is the truth. That is the study of God, you know, kind of thing and how we should follow. That's so weird because you take that, there's a context behind that. Mm. Like wherever they're coming from, they have a particular lens, wherever city, whatever style of church, whatever it is, right? Like it's, it's almost like if we think that there's a universal, I feel like we're tangenting, but this universal theology is like, well, have we read the Bible? Because all throughout the Bible, there's context, there's different regions, there's different narratives. 
like all of Paul's letters addressing a particular community that's addressing something that's different. The context is everywhere in how the theology engages and dialogues and wrestles, intending to what's happening there is, is part of that working out of the theology. Yeah, but to kind of talk about that too, almost assumes that people either want to discipline or they even enjoy that type of exegetical work and that sense of thinking about context and history and people's lives and cultures in that way. Because what might challenge us in this conversation is that when we think about theology and we're like, oh yeah, when we read the Bible, people can read it in a way just to extract certain points or certain statements or propositions and then seek to apply them. Like, if we approach it from that way, then it becomes even more difficult because then we're not considering the context of Scripture and of what was happening in the people's lives during then. But rather, we're like, okay, we want to extract quote-unquote truth and then to implement it into our lives, which can be, you know, disconnected from, you know, what was happening in the context of Scripture during that time. Well, and I just want to say this is a very evangelical sort of outlook. Like, I feel like the last... I don't know, 70 or so years, we've just decided that we were going to be denominationally blind and historically blind. Mm. It's kind of, I said this to a friend, right? It's (laughs) like when people say, I don't see color. Okay, but you realize that people, it still exists, right? It's the same thing. History still exists. Denominational divides still exist. But it's about knowing your history, knowing who you are, knowing where you come from, that actually gives you the ability to interact with other people. That's just intercultural competency 101 um so i was visiting a coptic church with john a couple weeks ago and what was really cool was we were sitting there during the liturgy and part of their prayers was to name all the early church fathers and then or some early church mothers mm-hmm. and i was like oh this is amazing because they're the eastern fathers too right like it wasn't it wasn't the western ones and i was thinking oh yeah like could we introduce you know, the church fathers to our context. And they go, oh, yeah, we totally should. Actually, um, I I need to confess something. I was supposed to, like, preach a sermon on Easter Sunday. But by Saturday night, I was like, I can't. There's nothing left in my brain. We've had a full week of just Easter things. I read St. John Chrysostom's Paschal Homily, and it was amazing because people were like, whoa, where did it come from? It's like, oh, this dude wrote it in the 400s, 500s. And it was, and it gave me the opportunity to talk about this early church father that they'd never thought of. But I think this is my high horse. This is my pedestal, right? Like this is, this is the thing that I get really, my soapbox that I get really angsty about. Because it's really important to me that as a Methodist, like that's what I, that's my orientation to the world. And the particular ways in which my tradition teaches me about my faith is really important to me because it gives me precedence for what God can do. But in the same way, like when we talk about contextual theology, one of the things that we mistake in is that all theology is contextual, which is, I think what you were saying earlier, be like, it's all about knowing where you're from and knowing that there is no such thing as a sort of universal theology. Like if we think about the Athanasian Creed, like it really did come from a particular place at a particular time. We think about the Council of Nicaea. Again, same thing. There were certain things that were happening at the time that caused the council to convene. And so when we're thinking about these things, 
we're saying, okay, well, what we share in common with these historical communities is the scripture and these, and now we've inherited these traditions. So how does that play out for us today? Because we're not living in the 400s. We're not even living in 1950, even though lots of people think we should be living in 1950. <laughs> but that's not where we are. We're in 2023. So what does theology look like? The, the action of thinking about God and living in the context of being a Jesus follower mean for us today? It's interesting that a lot of Protestantism is protesting the, the Catholic Church, yet... Response, re- reaction. Yeah, reaction. Yeah. But yet we have so many little popes who are dictating what the theology that we should follow and that we should hear to the what being church and all this stuff should should be. And there is not a lot of time for people. And again, we were talking about busyness. I think the last episode, people are too busy to reflect and discern on what would a theology look like that's contextual. Mm. And, and one more thing I was just thinking about, uh, I remember reading one of Amos Young's book and he was talking about how, for me, that the kind of, I used to think systematic theology is, oh, we need to learn from systematic theology so we can have all of our ducks in, in a line and make sure with concordance, everything makes sense and all this stuff. And I'm like, but then I remember reading his book, he's like, do you know that systematic theology is just, it's just one historical systematic theology that mm. someone created. And the ones that you're reading, who's, who's authored that, that's their systematic theology or that, you know, groups, traditions, systematic theology. And I was like, my mind was just, <laughs> my mind just blew. And I was like, that's totally correct. And we have to think about what is the theology that, that we're processing and we're discerning and we're thinking through. And what does that mean for our local, you know, context, our local churches? Isn't it fun? It's uh, not easy, <laughs> but sure, there's some fun to it. <laughs> so I was a history minor. I was supposed to be a history major, but it's a long story. And one of the reasons why I liked history was because it felt like I was learning about other people's stories and learning about what makes us us. And and it was an adventure. I was, uh, okay, I, I'm a really big Doctor Who fan. So this is part of it. Yeah. Whovians. Um, so, is that really what it's called? Yeah, yeah totally it's Doctor Who fans. So it, it's this like adventuring into the past, but then also knowing like which parts of the past we privilege. You know, as especially as Chinese Canadians, Sinophone Canadians, Asian Canadians, there's this like crazy thing where we have access to so many stories because uh, this is longer thing, right? Like because Hong Kong was taken over by the British and we're all of Hong descent around this table, we weren't actually, like, my parents weren't taught Hong Kong's history. Like, it was actually wiped for them. They were given a very specific history that would make them compliant. Mm. And so that ahistorical legacy was actually passed on to us and to our churches. And so it, for me, the, the act of unpacking that history is a grand adventure because it's like, wow, all these things I didn't know. It's not, it's not a judgment. It's like, there's so many other things I could get to discover which is probably why I'm doing a doctorate. <laughs> and I get that it's probably not fun for other people. <laughs> Some of your findings are very interesting. But it doesn't make it any less important. It doesn't make it any less important, even if people don't engage or study in the same way. But to, to be able to deny things of the past and to be able to curate or kind of censor things, it does affect how people are formed generations later because it's carried through those generations. 
and I do think that like knowing our story is so key because you know we are shaped by particular traditions, histories, narratives. But at the same time, when we talk about like local contextual theology, as we're engaging in our communities, like we also need to be aware and be having the posture of listening to other stories Mm -hmm. because like our own story is not the dominant story. Our story is part part of a story that is forming in and around us. Right. And I think like sometimes you know, when, when, when she was talking about that universal theology, it almost feels like, oh, this is, that's it. That's, that's, that's the only thing. There's, there's no other stories. This is it. But the reality is there's all these kind of uh, intersections that we also need to be, you know, aware of, identify, recognize, and even tease out and to even give language so that it's not just this idea that people actually can, can embrace it and enter into it. Mm. Well, and I think it's especially important for us as settlers, right? To be listening to how indigenous peoples understand the land and now that we're on their land, I think I think they've got lots of insight into how we can live well with them. Yeah. Or even how to make reparation. Hmm. And that's a scary word, I think, for some people to hear. But it's it's important work and it's necessary for us. But it is difficult. And it does pull us away from perhaps the traditional ways we have formed theologies and we have sought to live them out. And I think this is one of the things that is pushing on us. Like Bernard and I are currently taking a class on ethnography, right? Which led to what you were talking about earlier about visiting that Coptic Orthodox church, right? And so what's, what's ethnography? What's ethnography? Dr. John. <laughs> I, I didn't graduate yet, so I, <laughs> I can't tell you. We haven't taken the class. I yet. didn't pass I didn't pass the class. Yet. <laughs> So I could get it totally wrong. But what I kind of get a sense about what ethnography is, is, is in a sense, it's, it's very connected to what we're talking about in terms of context and understanding context and histories and narratives, being able to study the interactions of people and culture and being able to, to understand it from, from their own lens and the, the way that they apply meaning to things in their own lives starting from that as a sociological kind of perspective. At least that's how I would answer the question. But to be able to, to listen to stories, to be able to be present with others, to be in proximity with them, to be able to also uh, immerse yourself and interact with them, and to not to let your own matrix or whatever lens or framework to interpret their own actions, but, but rather to see like, okay, in... Like, how do they create meaning out of it? But out of that, how might God be working? And I think that kind of links together back to our conversation, which is, is not to almost apply kind of a universal theology, but rather seeing how is God working among us, specifically, particularly amongst the histories and narratives of people, and Starting from there, where do we take that next step? And where do we explore more? And where do we need to confess, make reparations? Where do we be able to discover something new? Okay, just for fun, so I could, I could be the, the, the hosting John, John voice here. <laughs> so from a Canadian-Asian perspective, what does that have to, like, what does that have to do with, with the church, churches that we're a part of? What do you, what do you feel like that's going to help? You know, what's the point of all that? Because it's like, 
most of the time we're just kind of living in, yeah, we have this evangelical theology. This is how we should do it. And, you know, and if you don't follow it, then maybe you get kicked out. I don't know. <laughs> but it's just like, but what, what does that mean for... That's a future podcast episode. <laughs> for a contextual theology for Asian immigrant church. What, is, what does that look like? I would love to hear from each of you about what you guys think about that. But the way I would answer it, just to at least to respond to it initially, is to start by thinking about what has been the story of Canadian Asians. And for those in Canadian Asian churches, that there has been so much that has been carried into who we are as a culture from our own histories and our own narratives but there's also been how do we navigate through the different cultures colliding as well of maybe for the second or third generations, even though we're not always ascribing to those terms, but that they have been shaped by multiple stories. And it's important to recognize those tensions and important to recognize that we are a mix and we have merged a lot of different cultures together. And that creates a unique people. And I think there's a very unique way in which each individual group of people and each context will encounter God and will be able to express their faith and to be living as the church, particularly in ways that connect with their own story rather than a universal story or almost a, you know, when we say universal it can be it can become very like neglectful of culture or sometimes even dehumanizing because it just then you know applies a, a picture of a person or an understanding of a person that kind of is not thinking about their own history and their own culture in that way so that's at least where i would start exploring and asking those type of questions for me at least in terms of being a canadian asian church because you know there's been so much into the mix of it and you know I know with the onset of, of how culture itself has also impacted the way we shape our faith, there's also that to contend with. And so, you know, later on in this conversation, even like, we're not even talking about universal, but there's, there's a big swing to the other side too, where it's like people feel that they have the ability to also personalize and individualize their own theology as well. And so this works for me. This is the theology I form. And therefore, this is what I'm going to live by. But that once again also disconnects from you know the community and from the group and from history as well. But yeah, there's so much at play in our lives. Non-denominational Christian. <laughs> sorry, no, sorry, sorry. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this. No, well, that's what happens, right? Like a lot of non-denominational churches become cults. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just gonna put that out there. There's no accountability. There's Right, there's no anchoring to a greater tradition. There's like nothing of this sort. So then, are you really a church? Mm. Right. So okay, but you know, you ask this question: Why should the Canadian Asian Church care about contextual theology? And my answer is: Well, because we're not disembodied people, mm. right? So right. if we look at urban geographies, churches are located on pieces of land. Really, and. I know, right? <laughs> or even if you don't have a church building, you still meet in a place. Well, I was like, you don't. I was like, oh no, I guess we still take up virtual space. You My church still takes live up. somewhere. That's right. Yeah. I still live somewhere. You inhabit somewhere. But if you take like your average church that has a church building, 
that presumably has a parking lot on an intersection, right? Like you're already embedded in society. Yeah. Like you have, there are neighbors around you, whether that is an industrial area, there's a neighborhood around you with residential buildings um, or whatever it is, you are around other people. You can't get away from that. And so why should we care? Well, because we want to love our neighbors. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. And then number two is that um, we think about, there's, Recently, there have been studies that talk about the decline of church membership and church attendance. Well, with that actually has come a decline with giving to charities and to nonprofits. So we know that the impact of churches in, on society is actually greater than estimated previously. And that it actually means that we have an obligation as Christians to think about our societal impact in, in those sorts of ways. Um, as Christians, we are known for being generous. We are known for taking care of the poor. But what happens when we stop thinking about those things? So again, it's a different slant on the neighbor question, but again, it's the same thing. But then back to the building, you think about, okay, well, if I take up this much space and my parking lot is this big and my parking lot only gets used like once or twice a week, what is the environmental impact I have on the land that I am occupying? Does the concrete actually act as a heat sink, right, to the environment around us? And so we're starting, you have to start thinking about um, the it's ways a lot in of which. EV cars now. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, it, you know, like, what, what does it mean that we all live in places that is prime farmland, right? See, in this work, I find, you know, we were joking about it, but I think it's so hard for churches to do this work because it's almost easier. To just have the universal theology, just like we need the gospel of Jesus dying for your sins, so you can get out of hell, go to heaven, you know, enjoy life at least here as much as possible, and try to save some people out of hell. And I feel like there's so much of that. So it's just like the discipleship is just like, okay, how can I just make sure I read some Bible, you know, every day, you know, or do some, make sure I pray a little bit. But to think through a theology that's embodied, like you're saying, to do that is so difficult. I wonder part of it too, you know, like that question that you post, shoot, why is this important? I, I think sometimes as local churches, and, and this is not just Canadian, Asian local churches, this is local churches in general. Like we just think that we are, we are the church and we're just going to listen to ourselves. Mm. But if, if you are like, you know, as you just said, we are in embodied spaces. That means geographically we are bounded to other traditions and other churches that are doing unique or different or similar things. Why don't we actually nurture some of that conversation? Actually seeing that we are part of the church. We bring, a, we bring something. We don't bring everything, but that's a huge posture shift. I find that that's so difficult unless your leadership is wanting to do that. Yeah. Like, or unless you already have a flattened leadership. I don't know if in your church context, but it's just in our, you know, a lot of our churches, you know, all around, I find that. Unless they're doing that, they're like you're saying, only listening to themselves. Only a certain group of people like will think about what to do next. But if you're just there just to make sure the church runs, you know, spin the wheel, make sure the legacy is in place, then you're not going to think about those things. So I find that that's at least in my context when I'm thinking about it, makes it so hard to think through that work and which, discern. Which is kind of interesting because like there's so much discussion now about the decline of church. Right, like that we are, you know, 
secular, post-secular. I don't know what the terminology is. I would love for us uh, to be post-secular. <laughs> but there's like even even the 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 the, uh, the stats were saying how 30% of all Canadians are non-religious, right? Um, so we're like not in this time that we can just kind of hold on and keep our power. Um, but I, I think we actually need to realize that. Um, like, are you are you building your church, or are you building <laughs> the kingdom? And and that's a that's a hard thing to chew on because for so long we've been building our church, my church, mm. not actually recognizing well your church is actually part of a bigger church. You are part of the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ alone, right? And it's 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 probably hard to swallow, but I I wonder if that's also part of why this is so important, mm. like. Yeah, and I—I I mean, within most Asian contexts, it is very hierarchical, right? Um, if the pastor says something, it will still get done, and I think—and that's a hard shift. I, I think to empower people, like you're actually inviting them to work against everything that they've been raised in. Um, so, I, I mean, some of it is just like, hey, can we invite the leadership to a different space? How do we do that? Is there a way that can be persuasive and winsome without disrespecting them and and it's hard because that that is work that uh i think really is jesus moving mountains yeah yeah for sure and that's a slow journey a slow journey i know we've used the term the the ferment of what god is doing the spirit's ferment i wonder sometimes if it just starts with being willing to enter into new spaces, to be able to listen, to be able to be praying and, and opening ourselves up to considering how might God already be present and at work here already, and to start asking the harder type of questions, but not so in a way that is trying to attack the organization or institution or perhaps even leadership, which I think sometimes it's easy for, you know, to, to kind of jump into that antagonistic kind of way, but to, to really be starting to have conversations in a way where we start to be willing to, to let our theology in a way that it affects a person and people start to shift us and change us and not so much keeping it in from a organizational or institutional perspective. Because I, I think that can change when we are starting to think about what is God doing in people's lives and what is also the church's part in it and what's the church's responsibility of it. Because back to your examples of talking about giving, right? I wonder what is the thing behind that thing? Why is, it, why is there a decline in the giving? And is it because giving in itself represented something before? in a certain way to certain people, being like, oh, it's a good thing to do, it's a right thing to do? Or is it actually stemming from, no, we have a responsibility to other people (laughs) that we need to love them well and we can do so by giving. But something has been disconnected along the way where it's no longer the sense that we're seeing giving to charity and being a part of those initiatives and movements as actually affecting people's lives. But rather, it's like, oh, no, that should be the good Christian thing to do, quotations. And, and then we feel that, okay, it's optional. I, I think some of it is just like 
if we're not discipling people with that generative imagination, mm. then it'll always kind of oh, let's just do this curriculum or let's go through, you know, purpose driven or, or you know, let's go through this <laughs> this uh, you know like already created material versus you have to like you're saying be listening to people what's going on the discipleship is not just me telling you these things but hey what, what's god actually doing in your life was he doing our community how and was he doing locally even in not not just in our church uh, proper but like with the people around here god's at work how do we join in on that and i think um i'm just looking at uh, a book by clemens sedmak and he he has a book doing local theology that i think i read during during my doctoral work but it was like talking about we have to doing local theology means a few things. It means substantive research-based work, like actually researching what's going on, personal experience-based work. You're actually finding, you know, talking to people, seeing what their experiences are, contemplative, pastoral prayer-based uh, assessment, what's going on in this unique cultural context. And then the second thing is translating the message of scripture in local tongue and language that directly engages the heart and minds of the hearers. And I find it's really interesting that Unless we have some of that kind of stuff in tandem in our discipleship, most of the time it's just let me just go through this you know book or, or just study the Bible in isolation or something like that. But it's not a community embodying kind of living out what God is calling us to, who God's calling us to be. And I, I don't know, I, I wrestle with that, and I'm always I'll, I'll tell you in my context, I'm always going back and forth. Like here's stuff that we should go through formally. But the sometimes not the re, I don't want to say quote unquote real work. Real work is like listening, hearing, doing it together, discerning together. And even on my leadership team for my church, I'm just trying to bring them to that space. And it's it's not easy to do mm. that. It's disruptive to where the direction and motion is currently going. You know, as as we were talking about earlier in this episode, you know, using the word missional has lost a lot of its meaning, but. You know, if we connect that to even the thought about being a missionary, and I think one of the things I've really learned from a lot of missionaries is when they go to serve in another new country or in a new context completely, how do they approach it? And also, what are the lessons they've learned from the past? And recognizing, okay, there was a time in history, which we go back to history, talking about like, oh no, we were just colonizing people and that was really bad. <laughs> or we were trying to you know, apply our theology, once again, to this group of people in a way that is so disconnected from them and from their story. And we are almost forcefully trying to get them to accept that. Still and, colonialism. And there's still, and there's, and that rears its head in a lot of ways still. But what I have been encouraged in my spirit about is to hear from missionaries' hearts, to being thinking about, we're going to go there and be among people first, and just be part of their life, enter into their communities, not so from a uh, perspective of like, oh, like, we're going to go there to convert them, and we're going there to, you know, we're going to be there to save them, but to be starting there first, to be attentive, to be more considerate of their their culture and where they're at and already start to look what has the ways in which God has already been here and starting to do something here. And that for me is exciting. And maybe, maybe for our churches, adopting some of that kind of attitude is helpful for us 
in how we think about being a church in our own context. Yeah, I've started to talk to, well, I was starting to talk to my church about the language of witnessing because you have to be able to identify firsthand like what is happening and how it how it's happening. And then, but then you also have, when it's time, you report on what you've been seeing and what the good news is, right? So witnessing, I think, is is almost, I prefer that to evangelism. Uh, I feel like that's a, that's a hard word for people right now. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is, like, if you go into a baseball game and you don't know what the batter is or what a pitch is or what the diamonds are or, like, what the batting cage is, you're not going to understand the game. And then, and then if you walk in, you're like, and you don't read the signs, you don't know how to get to your seat, right? So it, it's just, I, sorry, this is a baseball analogy because I'm wearing a baseball hat. Um, <laughs> a baseball cap. But so... So part of it is just what we're doing is just learning what the game is, like in this analogy, what what the pitch is, what the stadium is. Otherwise, we're just completely lost and we can't witness to anything. We don't know what God is doing because we're not paying attention to what the sign says or what the, what, you know, what the people are doing or any of that sort of thing because we're not even mindful of what our neighbors are like. Mm. I want to take that example one step further too, which is when we start to see the signs and we start to understand, that's one level of it. It takes us to a new level when we start playing baseball. And then we're like, this is the lived experience of it rather than a spectator or rather than just as someone who understands it conceptually. When we start playing it, then it's like, wow, it's hard to hit a ball. It's hard to run these bases. You know, this is what people are so enraptured by, like the fans. But for someone coming in, you know, trying just to understand it from conceptual, uh, they can only, you know, connect to it in, in such. And that connects to what we're talking about too, is like, you know, it's, and it's one of the things that we kind of put in our notes is we can do kind of data analysis of our neighborhoods, but we could also live in our neighborhoods and dwell with those who live around us and be part of the neighborhoods and be part of what's happening, that opens us up to, to really engaging in the context in a such more realized and embodied way rather than, once again, thinking about a universal theology that we just need to apply to this data well, point. It's like you come and you, you play cricket. There you go. You know? There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's our game. This is the bad. Not that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yes. And it takes way longer. <laughs> takes way <laughs> I don't know if it would be a game anymore. But, uh, you know, as we wrap up our conversation for today, is there a final thought that you guys would want to offer about doing local contextual theology? I think going back to when we talked about like discipleship and kind of learning and listening to different stories, like I wonder if one thing that we lack is to hear the plethora of voices and giftings. Mm. You know, when we talk about, like, why aren't we seeing things that way? Like, well, where's the prophetic voices that is speaking into our churches? Where are the apostolic voices that is seeing the new things and is able to articulate that? You know, if our whole, you know, system of church relies just on teachers and shepherds, then those are the only things that we see. And that's the only things that we hear. That's the only lens of the neighborhood that we're seeing, but not the larger reality around us drinking some of that apes kool-aid eh 
Well, <laughs> li- a little bit, but you know, there there are other voices too. Oh, I didn't, okay. see, I didn't even say okay. Apis. Oh, okay. I did yeah, not yeah, say yeah. Apis. Oh yeah. Well, and then on the flip side, if you've got too many prophets and apostles yeah. and evangelists, just be angry. yeah, like it's you, we need the full body of Christ. I'll just kind of end with with my my thought about. I think for some people, if I were in the same place twenty years ago, I would think some of this is heretical. Very honest. Like right. I think it'd be like, no, what you you're saying? You have to do local theology. No, 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 no. There has to be this this reformed, you know, high high theology that we all ascribe to, and you know, we're, we're Protestants. You know, it is, we're evangelicals in, in this way, and and I've I've come and I I read so and so systematic theology. This is how we should do theology. This is what the church is. All this kind of things. But I would highly encourage people to think through, like, no, it, it's not even, don't have to call it contextual theology. It, it's just a lot of things. I think like what Xenia mentioned before is just there's some intercultural competency that we just need to do instead of just saying, let me just tell you how you should live your life or how you should be church. But the thing is that it, it's just like, it, it's not heretical. It, it's something that we have to do the deep work in doing. And it's more that I think people don't want to think through the deep work of that. And it's messy. It's just so messy to do this, but yet it's so important to walk with people, to hear their stories, to see what God is doing. And that changes trajectory of how you be church. And I think that's more spirit living than just, okay, here's the church that's dispenser of religious goods to you. Mm. I, I find too that because so many of us have been raised in STEM, or we've been raised in formulas, um, or we've just been raised to, like, if we do X, Y, Z, we will end up with a good life. That sort of thinking is very rote. And so part of our task, in Asian Canadian churches especially, is to say, well, how do we teach people what it means to have imagination that God has given them? And how do we help them find their own stories Mm. so that they can actually know what God is doing, even with them and among their neighbors? and in the broader neighborhoods, right? So it's it's actually not as easy as it is, like it, as, we, as we might like it to be. And I think a lot of us around this table were shaped by the arts and social sciences. And so these things actually come as naturally as breathing to us. But for those of us who weren't raised that way or aren't wired that way, it's a whole new skill set, um, especially, and especially as um, I'm teaching in seminary, right? Like, you see students come in, they're like, oh, I just, no, you know, it says this in the Bible, so it must equal this. I'm like, okay, but what about the context? Let's come back to this. Let's come back to how how the story is being shaped because it isn't X plus Y equals Z, right? So that's the really hard task that we have ahead as, as pastors and as leaders in the church. These are good words. These are good words. And... It can be scary, but it also is something that is driving us deeper into considering what God is doing among us. And I think at least for me in listening to you guys talk about this today, it's bringing back to mind also about who Jesus was and his incarnation and him coming into a specific context and ministering to a specific group of people. And what did that mean? Did it mean that he was Jewish and he was a man in that time? And how did he interact with others? And how did he show us 
what does it mean to live in that context, present in that context, and, and to minister and to love and to point back to Christ and be part of what God is doing and how the kingdom is, is being birthed out of that. And so for me, that's something that at least brought back to mind. I know it's an example we've used over the years about the incarnation and how Jesus moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson has, has paraphrased. But, you know, that, that is also for us a consideration that this work is necessary and it's important. And so let us know what you guys think about doing local contextual theology. We'd love to hear from you guys. So much to chew on and so much to continue to wrestle with. And we know that these are not easy conversations, but hopefully they are going to stretch and open us up to something amazing that God is doing in our own context and in our own Canadian Asian church. You can always get in touch with us by email at contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and also share this podcast with others because that helps this conversation to continue to grow and invite more people to be part of it. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.